Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Um, I don't know if anybody's wished you a, a Merry Christmas yet, but there you go. Least it's, uh, is that too soon? We're four weeks out. If it's too soon, you're a Scrooge. So, uh. <laughs> um, I think it was 280 years ago, a man named Charles Wesley, brother of John Wesley, which you may have heard of. Charles Wesley you've probably heard of too. He's probably written more hymns for the church than any single person that I know of wrote some 9,000 hymns in his lifetime. Some people suggested that he wrote 10 poetic lines a day his entire life. That's an incredible amount of output. He wrote one of the most familiar, most popular Christmas hymns, and I'm going to prove it to you in just a second. I'm, going to, I'm just going to sing a line, and I want you to sing the second line back to me. I know this is weird, kind of creepy, but I want to prove a point. Okay. Hark the herald angels sing. And that happens over and over and over again in that story. The conclusion to the wonderful story of Jesus is the glory of God. Glory, that's our attempt today, to look at the glory of God and the coming of Jesus. Um, some have suggested there's three categories of knowledge that we work with all the time. There are things that we know we know. That's our most favorite place to be. And then there's these other weird places, like things uh, that you know you don't know or the things you don't know, you don't know. Get it? Those second two classifications, when it comes to understanding the glory of God, we're kind of working there. I'm admitting I don't know so much, and then I don't even know what I don't know about the rest. And that's how confusing the glory of God is to us. <clears throat> um, let, let me give you proof. The, the angels announce the glory of God at the birth of Jesus, and then you just look at Christmas. And you tell me, is it an expression of not knowing what we don't know? I'm not even saying it's all bad. I mean, the family and the food and the friends and the stuff and all the trappings. I mean, I got my radio station at 99.92, okay? Yeah, it, I, I do. I'm waiting for them to play It's a Wonderful Life on TV. I want to watch that too. I have my traditions. I have mo those things that I like as well. But let's be honest, Christmas, Christmas has taken on kind of a life of its own. Someone once said this, I think it's true, we have successfully manufactured an event that clearly demonstrates the postmodern phenomenon of creating one's own meaning. There you have Christmas. We've created in our culture a, uh, a holiday that focuses, it seems to be, on everything but the glory of God. And there you go. The angels announce one thing, and it's many other things. Do you understand? So I think it would really help us as we kick off the Advent season, we got four of these together, that we look at the intentions and the work of God through Christ on that first announcement, the glory of God. So if you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter 2, the announcement of the coming of Jesus in chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. <clears throat> very familiar stuff. All of this will be very... Uh, uh, familiar to you? Here's the announcements. The shepherds and the angels. Verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory, there's the word, of the Lord shone round them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of 
David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying what? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth with those whom he is pleased. Two phrases there. The glory of the Lord shone around them and the glory of God in the highest was the announcements by the multitudes and there's that word again. And over and over again in the scriptures you see this, this word connected to the birth of Jesus, the glory of God. The word in, in Hebrew is kabod. It means heavy. It means weight. It, it's got an intensity to it, an abundance, an esteem. It means the importance of majesty or the, in essence, the crisis of God. His glory you know, in the New Testament, which we, uh, we love to spend our time in, there's profound realities there in that one of them is that Jesus presents himself as a friend to sinners, and then my head pops off. If you consider who he is in this particular announcement and his glory, and you understand that here you have Jesus now described as a friend of sinners, not only in example, but in description. When, when he calls his disciples, perhaps you remember this, when he's calling his disciples and he first calls Matthew and this group of people get together to have a party, a dinner party. And there is, there is the sinners, the notoriously evil people of the community hanging out with Jesus. And then when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, want to actually say something derogatory or a put down, they say, there goes Jesus, the man who's friends with sinners. And Jesus himself in John 15, 15, talking to his disciples, says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. I mean, this, this wonderful truth that somehow Jesus is our friend or that God is friend to sinners is hard to really fathom. We've already seen this in John 1, Jesus, God in the flesh. Now think about it. Think about how hard it is to get in your head, this God becoming friends with sinners. Especially when you think that glory that belongs to God alone is that there's a tremendous weight and a tremendous awe and a tremendous burden and crisis to God. He's not like us. He is altogether different and holy, and right, and pure. And then the text says he's a friend. I'm scratching my head. How could we be friends? He's too glorious. And then we're commanded over and over to give glory to God. How do you do that? People kind of mess that up in their heads. We're commanded to give him glory. Giving glory isn't adding to him. It's not like he's impoverished and his pockets are empty of glory and he needs you or me to kind of fill him up. We don't improve him. We don't add to him. We don't kind of solve the lack he has of glory. He is glorious. Giving glory is simply an invitation to you and I, to the saved sinner, to recognize his glory and to delight in his glory. And it has everything to do with his presence in your life, okay? Let me just show you kind of as an example. In the Old Testament, again, the glory of God is demonstrated over and over again, described over and over again. Perhaps you remember even the stories of Israel all the way back in Exodus 16, God gives manna to Israel, this bread from heaven, and the text describes the glory of God arriving for that. 
In Exodus 24, God meets Moses on the mountain and he gives him the commandments again. The glory of God is there. Exodus 25, God told Moses, let them make a sanctuary that I might dwell in their midst. The glory of God dwell in their midst. And then Exodus 40, you see the glory of God showing up and filling the tabernacle again and again. Just God hanging out with his people, demonstrating his glory. And later on, you see uh, God's glory come to dwell in the temple that Solomon built in Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles 6. Over and over again, his glory coming close to his people. But you know the story how it goes with Israel. Israel has a problem of sin and rebellion and idol worship, and so they do their thing. And the presence of God leaves Israel just before their exile into captivity. And after a long period of time, they return, and there's the building of the second temple. But this time, there's no mention of the God, glory of God arriving with it. It's just not mentioned. In fact, you don't see it again until guess when? Luke 2. When God announces the birth of the Savior and glory to God in the highest. You, you get the picture. God getting close to his people, trying to win his people, his people running away, running away, running away. There's a darkness there. And then here in Luke 2, the glory of God arrives again. And it's made perfectly known to us through Jesus. I know you know this, but let's just be honest. Who of us can get our head around God? It just it drips over the edges, right? I, I can tell you the word Trinity, and I can try my best to describe Trinity, and then we end up going, and there it is. It's not a test tube kind of thing. I can tell you that he's all-knowing and then we'll ask a thousand questions, but he knows that. He's eternal. He's always, always was. He's holy, beyond holy, perfect, and sovereign in all things, even like we talked about last week. Not just of the good that we want, but the bad that we will see our growth in. All of those and many, many more. The finite me, you, trying to understand the infinite. How do you do that? I hung out on Thursday with my family for Thanksgiving <clears throat> There's 12 adults and five grandkids, soon to be seven grandkids. And the five little dudes, girls too, were, were talking. You know what that sounds like, right, when they're three and under? I have no idea what's going on. They're making sounds and squeaks and all sorts of things, but they're communicating. I don't know. Somehow parents can figure out some of the language. But I'm sitting there going, I don't know what you want. I don't know what. It's just this beyond me. I can't figure out a three-year-old. How could I figure out God? How could I possibly think enough, contain enough, sort enough out where I go, oh, God, I'm stuck. I got a big problem. How could you possibly get your head around God? Can I suggest to you there's a way? Can I suggest to you there's only one way? His name's Jesus. That's how you know. Hebrews 1, verse 3, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. We've already seen this in John chapter 1. Perhaps you remember this, John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. That's Jesus. No one ever has seen the full glory of God. You couldn't handle it. We'd be consumed by it. We wouldn't survive it. But John says that Jesus makes God known. That phrase, has made known, is a Greek word that simply means this idea of exegeting or explaining. The word exegete is what preachers do when they explain to you truth or explain to you what the Bible says. Jesus is preaching God to people. 
He's exegeting the Father to sinners. That's Jesus' job. Let me tell you what he's like. He reveals the glory of God to us. And he makes God clear. If you want to know and see the glory of God, you simply have to look at his son. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus is the very nature of God. So, I mean, these are going to be escalating, mind-blowing experiences. One is that you can somehow get your head around who God is by the person of Jesus. That's one. But here's the second one. The glory of God came close in Jesus. I suppose uh, one of the most amazing realities in the world is that the infinite, holy, awesome, transcendent, all-powerful, creating, sustaining God would move towards his creation and that he would come close. If God decided to do something else, he'd be right. If God would say, no, I'm so different, I'm, I'm staying away. Who could fault him? He's holy. But our God is described here as putting on flesh and coming to this world and getting close, right? In fact, we know this again. This is our study in John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And what does it say in verse 14, chapter 1? And the Word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. The eternal creating God who holds it all together by the Word of His power put on a body and hung out with man. Right? Hard to understand. God became a man, a real man. The creator subjected himself to his creation. All the physical laws that he himself invented, he placed himself under. To all the ups and downs in life, he was in it. He actually learned a language. The one who had all understanding. He grew in knowledge over time the one who knew all things. He had to be taught things. He lost his baby teeth. He went through growing pains. When he was taught the craft of carpentry, his father put a saw in his hand or a plane in his hand. The one who knows all things, the one who made the wood, was learning. He did it as a real human. Yes, sinless and perfect, true, but he did it. The glory of God came close. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's amazing enough, but let's add to that. Not only did he dwell with creation, but this glory of God in the person of Jesus got into the mess, which takes it to another level. Don't you agree? All these things are amazing to consider, that he would be made known, that he would get close, but wow, it's hard to fathom that he didn't stay distant from the pain that he would get right elbow deep in it to feel what we feel. Here's just a short list of what he experienced. He knew loneliness and rejection. Ever felt that? He was homeless. His family thought he was crazy. His best friends turned their back on him. One of his closest confidants sold him to be killed for pocket change. He stood face to face with the devil and endured all the demonic tricks that he would throw at him. He dealt with death. 
He endured gossip and slander. He endured suffering for righteousness' sake. He was shamed publicly. He endured periods of hunger. He received criticism of his ministry. His theology was mocked. His message was rejected. His preaching was critiqued. His disciples didn't understand. And he endured complete and utter separation from his father. Do you think he knows? And there's more. On and on it goes, what he felt. I've used this illustration before, but I think it paints a perfect picture. I, when my sons lived at home, we had a band room. And in the room, there were guitars all over the room. And if you would strike a chord, they would all sing. They would all make the same sound. That's called sympathetic resonance. Well, just think of the chord of humanity. It's called pain and suffering. His heart resonates with the human chord of suffering. The God of all creation, the one who always was, the sovereign one. Why? Why would he come to this world to put on flesh to then go walk in the way of suffering? Hopefully you're considering this this Christmas. Our God did that. He came and he came close and he got in the mess. He faced what we face. The scriptures are clear. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrow and familiar with suffering. Hebrews 4, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but he is one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Do you believe that? I mean, seriously, when's the last time you sat down and thought, just contemplated for a long time? He was tempted in every way I was. Really? Every way. Every creepy little way we're tempted. Because that's what the text says. He was tempted in every way. That's how close he gets to it. No doubt if he was tempted every way, he had the temptation to do his own thing over his father's will. Do you ever get that temptation? To not want to obey God? If you're a guy and you struggle with lust, do you think he was ever tempted with the opposite sex? Of course he was. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Was he ever tempted to lie or use words to kind of manipulate a situation? If he's tempted in every way, then that had to be there, right? Tempted to use anger or strike out in anger, to be bitter, to hold resentment. Do you think he was ever tempted with that? Well, if he's tempted in every way, yet without sin, then he had to be tempted with those things. Or to somehow get to the end of some kind of particular thing and have it go so poorly and give up on faith. Do you ever think he was tempted to kind of go, ah, if he's tempted in every way, as we are, then it includes every way you're tempted. Every way. He got up to his eyeballs in what we feel. The glory of God came close that way. So here's something I think you should do with this. I know how it works for me sometimes, so I'm just going to relate a little bit if this works. Sometimes when we struggle with sin, now we... We fail. He didn't fail. He was sinless. We're sinners. So you get there's a big disconnect there. But sometimes when we struggle, we think, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to clean my act up. Like I'm going to work really hard to kind of sort out my life and fix my problems. And then after I'm clean, I'm going to come back. And he'll be more receptive to me then. Because after all, I can't come in off the street like that. I just got, I've got to be more presentable. Sometimes we think we can't go to the Lord with our problems. Sometimes we think, hey, there's no way he'd understand me. 
There's no way he would get what I think or what I struggle with or when it gets dark at night, what my brain goes to. There's no way he knows what that's like. And so I'm embarrassed. I'm afraid. I won't say. I keep my distance. Listen, the text couldn't be more clear. He's tempted in every way. Therefore, he understands every way. You're tempted. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. So if we're just doing our math here, right, all this sounds too good to be true, right? So good so far. Glory came close. It got into the mess. It experiences what we experience. And, but I got to add this, and it's, it's important. I want you to know as much as the glory of God getting close is a beautiful thing, I want you to know the glory of God is a serious business. It's serious business. In other words, the glory of God is devastating without Jesus. Perhaps you remember the story in Exodus 33. There's a kind of post-conversation meeting that Moses has with God after the people of God have rebelled again. Remember, God has given the law. Moses has stayed on the mountain too long. The people of God get busy fashioning a golden calf to worship, and they're doing their crazy human worship stuff. And God is just kind of going, let me just start over. And Moses and him have a conversation about continuing this blessing and this covenant. Moses intercedes for the people after that golden calf moment. And Moses says some things like, Lord, I, you got to go with us. You can't stop. In fact, I'm not leaving here unless you go with us. And then Moses moves and transitions into like a real personal moment with him and God. So God, I, can I get close to you? Like, will you let me see you? Can I see your glory? Which is an absurd request, by the way. Like, can I see all of it? And what was God's response? No way. You will not survive seeing all of me. So here's what I'll do. I will stick you in the crack of a rock, and I will pass by and cover you with my hand, and you can see my back, but you can never see my glory, because if you do, you will not survive it. It's possible when we're going through this list of things that you hear about God who makes himself known, a God who gets close, a God who gets in the mess and sympathizes in every way as you and yet without sin, and you would think, well, who wouldn't want that God? There's nothing, no tension there, just all win for me there. I want you to know that the glory of God is terrifying without a crack to hide into, without a rock to hide behind. You and I are sinners. I don't know how gory to get with that, but the distance between God's standard and God's perfection and God's holiness and us, our words for it. All the Bible tells us is that we're sinful in every way and that the consequence of that sin in every way, even our quote-unquote, good deeds are filthy rags. The consequence is death, eternal separation from God. There is no answer except for the fact that Jesus came. He came. What you and I need is what the angels announced on, in Luke 2 to the shepherds, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what we need. 
We need a cleft to hide in. We need a covering. We need to be hidden in him. My sin, is, my sin is completely punished on Christ and his righteousness, his perfection is imputed to my life by faith in Christ. That's our only hope, to see his glory. On your own, apart from this true believing faith in Jesus, well, you need to know the glory of God isn't so pretty then. It will destroy you. It's devastating. But by simple faith in Christ, this glory now, and this is wonderful becomes peace and comfort. Think about that. Your confession of Jesus makes a difference between devastation and destruction and peace. Same glory. Do you understand? One Savior. Okay, there's one more truth of God's glory that we want to deal with, and that is the glory of God now defines us, defines our life, defines our living. If we confess these things, we put our faith and trust in Christ alone, then it brings meaning to our life. Apart from Christ, and maybe a lot of you could say, well, I could preach that sermon. Apart from knowing Jesus, life is an endless cycle of pointless wanderings, right? Can I get an amen? I mean, I understand it. If you don't know where you're going, then it explains every lost bunny trail you end up on. But that's life. You spend your life stuck on selfishness because there is nothing else, right? If you're it, you might as well try to win. And you try to make yourself happy all the time. And that is also part of other people's pain. You see it's an endless cycle. But knowing Christ means that it turns our self-worship into true worship. This idea that we're made to worship something and because we cannot see God, because we don't know Christ, then we end up worshiping the created thing, Romans 1. We end up creating, uh, worshiping the wrong thing, including ourselves. Well, we can turn that false worship into true worship. It takes our pointless existence and gives it finally divine meaning. It explains why you can do whatever it is you do and know that it serves the king. It takes all the mundane stuff and it raises it Two offerings that glorify God. Mundane thing. You know this, and Paul said it. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all to the what? Glory of God. Nothing can get more mundane than eating and drinking. Am I right? I mean, I put it high on my value list. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But it's certainly a very, very common, everyone does it everywhere around the world kind of event. And he says somehow you can even think about that to the glory of God. Think about something, some truth you confess that so transforms how you live your life that you can actually now see the very mundane things as a ways to bring glory to God. And that's true. So how can you, if that's the question we started out with, how can you bring glory to an all-sufficient, perfect, all-wise, infinitely beautiful, all-powerful, all-knowing God? A God who lacks no glory. A God who lacks nothing. Who is complete and perfect already. How can you bring glory to him? Well, pretty simple. Not like you haven't heard this before. By enjoying him. By loving him. By obeying him. Someone a long time ago wrote these illustrations, so they're not mine, but it'll help explain it. How would you bring glory to a beautiful painting? Well, my assumption is you wouldn't go home and put on the, you know, the artist's smock and grab your, your paints and your brushes and go, eh, I'll deal with the Mona Lisa, out of this and out of that. You wouldn't change it, right? 
You would sit there and drink it in, and you'd elbow your friend and go, look, look at that. Look how awesome that is. How would you enjoy Thanksgiving or a great meal? I mean, if your wife sets the turkey and all the fixings on it, you get up from the table and you go grab all the spices and other things, go, let me fix it, babe. I'm going to help you. <laughs> no. You eat it. You enjoy it. You say thank you for it. You take pleasure from it. How do you give glory to like a bridge? Let's say some engineers, construction company built this great bridge. How do you bring glory to that? Well, you put your family, your kids, and your mom and your dad in a car and you would drive across it and you would put your trust in it. You wouldn't point at it from distance. No, no, no. You, you go. It's a pretty bridge, but I wouldn't put any faith in it. How would you bring glory to someone who is generous to you? Who's just benevolent and kind and giving to you? Would you get a second and third job so that you can earn enough money to pay them back so you're square with the house? Would you do that? No. You'd simply say thank you. How would you glorify someone for their great wisdom, for the truth? Well, pretty simple. You do what they say. You wouldn't hang around the edges and go, hey, man, next time you got a problem to solve, let me, let me contribute my wisdom because it'll make it better. And you submit yourself to that truth. Are you getting the analogies here? The bottom line is that he is that plus, plus, plus. He is a treasure. He is good. He is your provision. He is beautiful. He is your strength. He is your security. He is your wisdom. He is love. And the only way you and I can give glory to God is rest in who he is. Appreciate who he is. Say thank you for who he is. And live your life based on who he is. It's the only way you can give glory to God. That's what can take eating and drinking to a holy endeavor. So we can move it from just mundane to a glorifying test because even in that moment, the reason why we sit and give thanks is because we're saying out loud, there's not a bit here that doesn't happen without you. Crops don't grow and rain doesn't fall without you. Meals aren't prepared without hands that live and know what they're doing. Nothing about this happens without you, God. And I'm grateful. And therefore, you bring glory to something so mundane as eating and even drinking. Every man, woman, and child, whether you're young and old or rich or poor or educated or simple or whether you're sick or healthy, all of us can and do glorify God when we enjoy him for what he gives and trust him in what he promises and obey him for what he says. The angels, many, many years ago, thousands of years ago, declared glory to God in the highest. We have been learning ever since then how great that is and how true that is. Those angels knew what they were talking about because they were foretelling of God leaving heaven, taking on flesh, and getting close to his creation to put on our experience to give us his righteousness and bear our consequence. It's hard to fathom how much was packed in one phrase. Glory to God in the highest. It's like a 33-year movie played in their minds when they said, this is what God's up to. 
And that's what we get. We have it every day, not just at Christmas, by the way. But what we get this time, what we get in this beginning of this Advent season is to see Jesus again and again and again for who he is, that he is this God come close in our mess and he makes everything an offering. Amen? Let's pray and thank him for that. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that this announcement was true. There was gonna be peace on earth. Thank you that this announcement was true, that the glory of God would come on display and it would be shown around and that it was good news of great joy for everyone who would believe. Our confession is Jesus, the Savior, that gives meaning and purpose to everything that we have in front of us. And particularly this Christmas season, Father, when the world is broken and seemingly unfixable, we still give thanks. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.